With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Deconstructing PSYOPs, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Welcome to TNT again. Um, Today we're going to talk about what's going on in Congress and the British intervention there. Uh, We don't usually follow the details, the ins and outs of legislation going on in the Congress. Uh, Lawmaking like sausage making is not a beautiful sight, as Bismarck, I think, once said. Um, but it seems that the future of the Ukraine war at the moment seems to be hinging on the votes that are going on there. Uh, the Senate, uh, in a bipartisan bill, passed a package that would allocate $61 billion to military aid, which would push Ukraine over the line in terms of sustainability, at least until uh, the elections in November, and then all the bets are off. But it seems to be stalling in the House, which is the second chamber of Congress, where uh, a pro-Trump Republican Speaker Mike Johnson is saying that he's not going to bring it before the vote, which means that uh, Ukraine aid will dribble out. And who knows if uh, the Ukrainians will survive another three months or or so. So this is actually very important, even though Europeans don't usually follow what's going on in the Capitol Hill. But for instance, you go to the Hill website of Politico for the latest up to date, even though they're biased against Trump, they report uh, pretty much what's going on. the, the thing is, though, um, it might change if um, they manage to find a procedural uh, bill that hasn't been used for years. This is a tr- Democrats talking to sympathetic journalists that will overturn or bypass Mike Johnson and make it uh, pass the bill anyway. So there's a lot of uh, back backroom stuff going on, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, it's, it's worth watching in the next few days. On the other hand, they don't want um, Trump as uh, very specifically said he doesn't want not want this bill passed and um the question on the question of whether the bill will go back to the senate with a immigration provision that is you've got to protect your own borders before you protect ukraine's borders uh, which is obviously a, a vote winner trump uh, with his uh, eye on the uh, elections has said that he does not want that i think because he knows that a, a border legislation which has been opposed by the democrats unless it's combined with uh, which has been opposed by, but they're prepared to compromise it on it because uh, because they want to push the Ukraine thing through. Uh, he he wants the open borders because it's it's a big vote winner for him. So he said no to that. But anyway, what um, uh, my main point is that uh, the British have intervened in all this, and um, it basically it's rather blunt intervention from uh, Lord David Cameron, who's the Foreign Secretary or Foreign Minister. He was a Prime Minister until two thousand sixteen. And uh, he's an old Etonian, uh, I think a schoolmate of Boris Johnson's, you know, so Eton, that famous public school, produces a lot of Britain's uh, recent prime ministers. Um, he has uh, said, well, I'm, I'm going to shed the diplomatic niceties, pass this bill. So in a way, he's going right up against uh, Trump and the, and the pro-Trumpers in the House, assuring that this bill will not pass through anti-Ukrainian with a very pro-Ukrainian intervention. And of course... Those of us who follow the alternative media have our suspicions that the British intervened in both the Russiagate scandal of 2016 um, onwards uh, to to sort of sabotage Trump's presidency. And there's probably, uh, my guess is he probably knows this by now. And uh, someone told me last week in one of my chats, uh, one learns a hell of a lot in this job, uh, that uh, the, the Brits probably uh, participated in, in the vote steal in 2020. I'd love to have more detail on that, but, you know, and of course, they've intervened in previous uh, uh, elections and previous in the 19th century. But of course, so even though the, the Americans kicked them out in 1776, they've got their hands on the American political process. Um, the the uh, Trump, um, Cameron wheeled out his usual uh, British arguments about Hitler. We mustn't uh, repeat the appeasement of the 1930s. The Hitlers of this world must be stopped. I don't think uh, Putin is a Hitler, and I think the uh, comparison is dangerous because, of course, it activates everybody's instincts to go to war and not avoid and to avoid invasion of Poland and, and Czechoslovakia that happened in 1938 with this illusion that strangle a tyrant when he's young and not yet developed his power, and then it'll be good. But of course, I don't know. I think it's a crazy, absolutely crazy idea, and so I would strongly advise the Trumpists. 
to hold their ground and uh, face down this challenge from the British uh, with all the information that they have about the British meddling in the past. The British people are your friends, but the British political class are not your friends. The only person who has been quoted is the 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 the, the blonde uh, sort of uh, face of uh, the the uh, Trump movement, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is unusually outspoken, and when told of uh, Cameron's intervention in the Hill newspaper, uh, said that he could kiss my ass. So that was a, a true Americanism in the spirit of 1776, and I hope all lawmakers will follow her in spirit. And the interesting thing on on Twitter and uh, the Daily Te Telegraph comments which reported his his article in The Hill, and they're nearly all anti-Cameron. And I, I mean, I, I accept that uh, some uh, comments in, on Twitter and in the British uh, below the line comments come from the Russian troll factories and St. Petersburg, whatever, some of them. But I mean, when you have so many and written in such a varied style and showing such a command of the English language, I don't think it's all troll factory. I think it's a, a lot of Brits are very unhappy about going to war on behalf of the British elites and desire to save face. And there's a similar thing. You expect at least some of them comments to be supportive. I know that there are a lot of ex-military types who write for the tele in the Telegraph comment pages. I didn't see any of them. Ditto on, on Twitter. So the Americans can be assured that they will uh, not be going against the British people for whom they have profound sympathies, but only against the British political class. Anyway, enough of that now. We're going to go after a quick break with uh, today's other news on Ukraine brought to us by the brilliant Basil Valentine. This is TNT Radio after the break. Russia, gas prices, COVID mandates. It just doesn't seem like anybody's doing anything about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT. This is the Pell and Eroth Taylor Show. We've got our news producer, Basil Valentine, with us. What have you got today for us, Basil? Hello, Penny, and good morning, good day to our viewers and listeners all around the world. Well, following on from your introduction, the UK could contribute to a new European nuclear shield if Trump wins the election, according to a senior German minister. On Tuesday, Christian Lindner, the German finance minister and leader of the so-called Free Democratic Party, called on politicians to consider an alternative model that could include British and French nuclear weapons. This after Trump's remarks on Saturday that he would not defend any NATO member that failed to spend at least 2% of its gross domestic product on defence. So um, the battle lines are being drawn, as it were, between uh, Western Europe and a possible new Trump administration. Trump, of mm. course, has recently reiterated his support for the war in Ukraine, even though he's instructed um, Johnson in, in Congress, as new speaker, to block the bill. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I think the objections in Congress to the Ukraine bill <coughs> are to do with the cost of it and uh, the fact that, as you say, it ignores the United States borders. I think in principle, they still want to carry on fighting this proxy war. Certainly there are lots of Republicans <clears throat> who share David Cameron's position that basically yeah. Putin has to be stopped. I, I think they're just tired of paying for it, Billy. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah, I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, I know there are, I mean, obviously the Republican Party is divided, isn't it, between the never Trumpers and the Trumpers, and you've got the rhinos, the Republicans in name only. And maybe even Mike Johnson wants the, uh, Ukraine war uh, continued, but at, at a lower clip or something. Um, yes. Yeah. But I, I just want to pick up on your nuclear com comment. Um, I just find it extremely unlikely that the British and French, for whom um, nuclear asset is a symbol of their great power status, want to share as, uh, democratically, as it were, say so. I mean, for, for them, they will want to hold command and control of a nuclear weapons. So um, I think the British are going to try and will sell that very very expensively. Uh, but it's definitely, I was um, writing a book about uh, Kennedy and uh, in the 1961-62, before the assassination, which has got all the attention. And, 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 and the Cuba crisis has got all the attention, but 61 was very interesting. He was very reluctant to, to share nuclear secrets with um, the Germans, for instance, because the, the Russians said that was a casus belli 
because the Germans had a lot of Nazis in the in the in the Wehrmacht post in the in the Bundeswehr and so on, and they were seen to be revisionist, you know. So, um, and and so that's why nuclear the Germany's funded the Israeli nuclear program, um, and the, as as did the French. But anyway, um, it's surprising how much the archives talk about this thing about uh, nuclear capa- nuclear capacity. It's an obsession. I don't know if it still is, but we we'll, we can expect this is a very very interesting topic, and we're probably only seeing they're probably w- working it out in Whitehall right now as we speak. You know, contingency plans and so on. What what, what, what what's your take on that? Well, what I, I want to know whatever happened to nuclear disarmament, Pelle? I thought we were supposed to be moving towards a nuclear free world. It seems we're heading towards even greater nuclear escalation, which can you know only uh, lead know. to a bad place. On top of that. The head of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, has called for the Biden administration to declassify information on what he calls a serious national security threat, which Mm. was later reported to mean Russian plans to deploy nuclear weapons in space. Mm. Talking to reporters at the White House later on Wednesday, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, expressed surprise at Turner's statement say that he was due to meet the gang of eight congressional leaders with special security clearance for classified briefings, which Turner has as head of the House Intelligence Committee. And that meeting is due to take place later today. ABC and the New York Times cited unnamed sources saying the security threat that Turner was referring to involved Russia's potential deployment of nuclear anti-satellite weapons in space. Uh, this reminds yeah. me of the old Star Wars days with uh, Ronald Reagan. Is- we don't know if there's any substance to it, but once again, it represents a very dangerous-sounding escalation because, you know, well, I mean, I think that weapons in space, it, it, so it are we. Be surprised. So so yeah, I know it, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if both sides are, are working these things out. But I mean, the, the America actually launched some uh, nuclear explosions. But I, I, I googled it this morning, actually. And it was completely unknown to me, but they they launched a, a nuclear strike on the on space. And we think what goes on in space stays in space. Not at all. It, it knocked out several satellites, including Britain's first satellite and Americans' first satellite, Telstar. And the radiation stayed in a, in a belt around the um, uh, Earth's orbit for t- up to ten years, and had it was seen in Honolulu, a thousand miles away from where the explosion took place. And that was just a, well, that was a megaton and what single explosion, but I mean, what's going on today could be far more effective. So we can be sure if the, if war breaks out, it won't be a couple of NATO trained soldiers shooting 19th century equipment at each other, which is what a handgun, a rifle is, but it will be almost instantaneous. It'll evolve all domains, uh, electronic internet, uh space satellites uh and of course nuclear strikes and we'll have about five minutes to think about who brought us to this uh situation it's very worrying i think and as you said there's it's no the definition of in, it's the definition of insanity isn't it Pelle? you know yeah. i mean what on earth is this species doing to itself you know yeah um it's really the the whole of the 21st century since 9 11 which uh, I have described as a bucket of poison in the well of human consciousness, um, and and since then, you know the, uh, as you say, the sort of ancient British enmity towards the Russians, which was being revived in the twenty first century, uh, is quite independent of nine eleven, but mm. uh, you know, nevertheless, represents a sort of sea change in the way international relations are conducted from the sort of, uh, and I use the term in the most general sense, from the most sort of liberal, progressive attitudes that we saw, even from so-called hardliners like Ronald Reagan and George Bush I uh, towards Mm. the end of the 20th century, um, they now look like paragons of virtue and diplomacy compared Mm. to the idiotic blowhards um, Mm. who seem to see... It's as if any form of diplomacy is now seen as weakness, Pelle. And so, you know, an endless sort of strength through building Mm. up military might is the only way. It's very, very dangerous. Well, you know, you you and I were taught the idea of deterrence. I mean, there is a case that nuclear weapons prevented a a lower level war. You know, I mean, I've heard that argument mooted. But anyway, deterrence was 
you don't take on another nuclear armed state and you just don't do it. You've got to find diplomacy. I mean, there's no alternative, right? And that's what nuclear deterrence meant. The balance of power, Kissinger and lots of other people wrote books about it. And that's how game, this whole theory of game theory came up and ga game theory has been used to in a lot of other contexts since then, but it started out with the Rand Corporation in 1960, gaming out a nuclear war and the, and the, and the, and the threat, mutual threat of terror. Big brains were engaged in this. Not anymore. And now nuclear deterrence, the fact is that another country has a nuclear power that could end nuclear weapons that can end the world in five minutes. That's now called nuclear blackmail. But so right. we mustn't stand up to Putin's nuclear blackmail. Do you want right. to F around and find out? F around and find out and you'll see what that nuclear blackmail is. I mean, it's a crazy. So yes. they're going to go in with NATO troops and say, go on, we dare you to do a nuclear strike. I don't think that's a good idea. No, not at all. It, it, as you say, the language around it has changed very much for the worse. You know, the, the, in the 20th century, it was very simple. Nuclear war was MAD, a very suitable yeah. acronym, because MAD stands for Mutually, Admore, uh, mutually Assured Destruction. <laughs> and any possibility of nuclear war is totally MAD. Now mm. you've got generals in the Pentagon talking about potentially winnable nuclear wars. Uh, yeah. You know, you can find articles about this in the last couple of years. It's, you know. Yeah, know. And as for, you know, nuclear weapons in space, I mean, we don't know whether there's any substance to these reports. Apparently, uh, it's only in development. But, uh, you know, I'm afraid to say that uh, my inclination would be that the likelihood is that there is no Russian nuclear weapons in space program. And the whole thing is an invention so that... Uh, the United States can put its nuclear weapons in space or something similar. Exactly, or indeed, that's the trouble. The, it, that's the trouble. Or indeed, if there is a credible uh, possibility of there being such a program, then immediately both sides should engage in talks to ensure that no nuclear know, no weapons talks. are ever placed in space. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. No, but it's just escalation and upon escalation. And of course, this information leaked with great fanfire and drama and, uh, you know, it, it hogged the headlines yesterday, just timed so that the, co the congressional Republicans would change their minds on this issue. Anyway, yes. this is an ongoing story and Very we will have point. a reason to return to it. Uh, thank you, Basil, for today's uh, news talk analysis. And we're going to go into a break before our first guest. This is TNT Radio. Thank you. TNT's Steve Malzberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did, which he believed and was advised by his lawyers what, what was was the duty of the president to do. And then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted. The example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean... This opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that uh, that Trump used. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to TNTradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Listen. Listen up! Listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back to TNT. This is Pelineros Taylor Show. We've got Katie Ashby Coppins, who is from in New Zealand, I think, and is an expert uh, dissident, if you like, who has been uh, opposing the power grab by the WHO. Is that right, Katie? Tell us a little bit more about it. You're you're you are sort of trying to save us from a global health tyranny, uh, yeah. and New Zealand is paving the way. 
Well, little old New Zealand is the little country that could. So very flattered to be um, from New Zealand, um, but also having had the chance to also uh, appear and support and uh, make submissions in the US. Um, I actually live in Australia and I'm a lawyer in Australia. Uh, so uh, also been doing what I can uh, in Australia. So I guess straddling both sides of the Tasman uh, and really supporting this uh, uh push back against uh, what could potentially be uh, our governments giving away inordinate amounts of power and decision-making opportunities to the WHO, uh, against which us as citizens will have no recourse. Well, give us the background to what the WHO is trying to do. Presumably, it's, it's some kind of global coordinating uh, or boss, uh, control role uh, in case of the next pandemic, of the existence of which, of course, is disputed. Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. The promise of the next pandemic just round the corner um, on all accounts. Uh, they are looking to, the WHO has been uh, charged, or various departments in the WHO have been charged with rewriting um, uh, the international health regulations, which are the current rules uh, that uh, govern pandemic response uh, around the world uh, for the 194 member states. Uh, in addition to the amendments of that document, which are significant in number, we often refer to them as the 300 plus amendments. Uh, they're also working on a brand new document called the Pandemic uh, Treaty Agreement, uh, CA plus uh, Accord, uh, and whichever uh, name they decide to put on, whichever version we get uh, delivered uh, and provided publicly. So two significant documents. The uh, version of the international health regulations, we haven't seen a, a version since December 2022, so we're flying a bit blind on those. Uh, and then the pandemic agreement, the version we've seen is dated last year, 30th of October 2022, uh, 2023. And would you describe it as an undemocratic power grab? Without a, Well, no, I'd, I'd describe it as an undemocratic power give. Uh, because, of course, this will be essentially what our governments will be handing uh, the WHO to be able to make decisions, uh, determine public health emergencies of potential, not actual um, risk, uh, and to have an immense say over our countries, uh, but to also demand significant amounts of money for it to be distributed elsewhere uh, and to allow for the opportunity to collect um, pathogens into central locations on which uh, testing will be done and um, 100-day vaccines created. So it's something like this. Uh, we'll talk about it after the headlines, but um, you, you're saying that we, the, the, the Global South is going to give away its DNA to create vaccines of dubious uh, efficacy and health benefits in return for which there's some kind of health equity. They get the vaccines back for free, you know, gee, thanks guys. But um, yeah, something yeah, well, like potentially, that. If it, potentially, yeah. uh, it depends which interpretation of the word equity you're taking, but as well as um, equity, there is a coherence and a few other general uh, concepts, mm. not as individual human uh, rights, but um, treating humans as um, one, I guess, organism. So dictating uh, who needs to take which products when, uh, not being able to move freely uh, if we do not, uh, and also, um, you know, uh, I guess requiring us to support uh, lower um, uh, countries, uh, lower economic yeah. countries um, to yeah. provide them with those products as well. Uh, yeah. In the same time, granting indemnities to the uh, right. pharmaceutical companies and then also having compensation schemes for all of those that are injured wow. from these products. Okay, Katie, we'll talk more about that after the break. This is the Newsbreak TNT Radio. I got a newsflash for you. Newsflash! TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. During the celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win, a shooting occurred near Union Station, resulting in at least one fatality and injuries of up to 15 individuals, as reported by the Kansas City Police Department. Russian President Vladimir Putin expressed surprise at the approach taken by ex-host Tucker Carlson during their interview, noting Carlson's unexpected tactic of patience and attentiveness rather than aggression. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Welcome back to TNT. We're with uh, Katie Ashby-Coppins, who's 
expert on the WHO treaty, which is going to uh, turn us all into slaves of the international pharmaceutical industry uh, in time for the next um, epidemic um, or pandemic, as some people call it. Uh, Katie, just before we carry on with what you've done uh, is in, in New Zealand to, to resist the little country that could, I'm not nearly as up on, to speed on on um, on the COVID thing as some others or, and the WHO thing. But what I do remember, I mean, I did read quite a lot, and I remember that we all the, the West suppressed ivermectin and um, bigged up the advantages of vaccines erroneously, and then W killed off HCQ, which was a, a possible solution. But I also remember that New Zealand, you closed your borders and you had a, quite an authoritarian regime. And now uh, New Zealand seems to be standing up on the good side. Have I missed something? Is that, I mean, what, why are you suddenly the good guys when you were sort of uh, under your, uh, what's, uh, what's your Jacinda Ardern? You were, you were sort of a, a byword for restrictions and, uh, and globalism or whatever. Tell, tell us what's going, going on in New Zealand. Well, I think it's probably just a sign of if you push people too hard, you're going to get a change in government. And that's exactly mm. what happened last November. Uh, we had a change in government. Uh, the uh, right side, I guess I'd call them, um, middle right, got in, but also required um, joining with the two other parties in order to form a coalition under our MMP system. So we ended up having a return uh, by one of the parties, which I don't even think was intending to run, uh, New Zealand First. And that really um, gave us um, the chance and the opportunity to push back against the amendments and to also require some more work and analysis to be done around the documents that um, could be voted upon in May this year. What's the public opinion in, in New Zealand now after your own COVID experiment? Was it regarded as successful or a disaster? Um, I think <laughs> I think your everyday person is going to say it's an absolute disaster. Uh, we are totally broke. Uh, everything costs an absolute fortune. To go to the supermarket, even to get a basket of food, is $100 at least. Uh, and it's, it's really crippled the country. And a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have hurt. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Um, and a lot of people are, are thinking it's not worth it. Interestingly, we've also got an, a royal commission um, that's commenced, but it was commenced on limited terms. The Under the new government, there's a requirement uh, to explore expanding those terms. And so uh, every single person in New Zealand is certainly, um, I think, interested in expanding those terms. So what's occurred never happens again. Hmm. So just remind me, what, what you, you had severe lockdowns, even though you had... Uh very few people coming in who could possibly spread the virus. So you didn't actually have a lot of COVID, but then you had far more deaths due to the vaccine itself. So that to me is proof that the vaccine uh, is the killer because if you had a lot of COVID, people could always say, well, that's the after effects of uh, long COVID or whatever. I just, yes, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, right. It's, we're effectively, the, I, I would describe New Zealand as the um, the opposite of the Israel test site, um, whereas New Zealand was ground zero. Uh, very little COVID, but everyone, uh, well, a large portion of the population vaccinated um, and under very, very stringent, strict terms. Uh, the number of people that lost their jobs as a consequence of uh, not being able to uh, work unvaccinated, um, you know, beggars belief. Uh, and mm. at the same time, you know, people were being granted exemptions in secret. Mm -hmm. And as and as, as what was your excess mortality rate compared to to other countries? Our excess mortality rate at the moment, oh goodness, I think it's at the, sitting at about the fifteen percent mark. But I know someone will tell me that I'm wrong, um, and it's right. probably higher. Uh, but I think wow. Australia and so New Zealand are too high. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly asking questions. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just say, I mean, I'm in Sweden, uh, which was the opposite of New Zealand in the way that we didn't have any restrictions almost. And we have uh, lower mortality than normal. And but incidentally, we have quite a high vaccination rate. I don't know how that works to, works out. But we were having uh, restaurant meals. I remember thinking this is the only restaurant in Europe that's open sort of thing. Cheers to all my friends. Anyway. Um, but so anyway, New Zealand has seen the light, and you what what you what, tell us a little bit about what you've um, you, you're pushing through and your role in it really, uh, and where are you heading next? Um, what, what, yeah. Well, I think it's definitely a movement in lots of respects. There's so many things for all of us to do, and it really does fall on all of our shoulders. A big part is making people aware of what's going on. 
uh, and informing people. So talk to five people about what's going on. And then those five people can at least scratch their heads and say, well, I haven't heard about this. I'm being particularly interested to know. Um, we've been really lobbying hard that lobbying politicians that really they're the decision makers in this. And if they know that this is going to be an election issue, like we did in New Zealand, like we intend to do in Australia, then you know that will make a difference and that will make a count. And we could see a situation where at least all of the pandemic treaty and the amendments to the international health re regulations are rejected. And we just stay uh, with the 2005 international health regulations, which were in existence and allowed the last four years to occur. Right. So that's bad enough. But I mean, what, what you're saying is what's coming up could be even worse. Definitely. And, yeah. And who's behind all this? Is it uh, Big Pharma, Bill Gates, the United States government? Or I mean, can we identify some villains here? The American government has definitely uh, got a big involvement in this and has been driving through a lot of the amendments. Uh, interestingly, we are, we're aligned by Big Pharma in respect of the pandemic agreement because under the pandemic agreement, Big Pharma may have to give away all of its intellectual property and therefore commercial interests in respect of their 100-day uh, vaccines, which they will uh, be allowed to get out, but they'll also have to share their recipes. So... Um, I yeah, look, it's a very it, it's a big mix, yeah. but I dare say there's a few um, globalists with some uh, three letter uh, and mm. acronyms that you could probably point to. And then then this is idea that the global South have, having to sort of everything can be in a world where your DNA is information, your property, and 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 you can sort of sell or whatever, and is actually a useful asset. They're being asked to 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 pass that information on somehow to some central data bank in order to to these bureaucrats to design, design some vaccines. Is that right? Yes. And quite incredibly, our genomic information will likely be provided um, or be required to be provided. Uh, mm. But separately, the, we have to scour the countries and uh, our countrysides, including of third world countries, and find any pathogens of pandemic potential, uh, which mm. they'll then keep it a one, one centrally located lab in order for them to conduct all sorts of testing on them. Um, in order mm. to be in time to make the next vaccine um, in advance of this pathogen coming Final question. How is the mainstream media treating this issue? Because they're one of my favourite targets, because I think they give people completely the wrong, uh, distorted sense of reality about many issues, you know. Well, first and, uh, of all, they're, they're not failing our democracy. Mm. Well, first of all, they're not talking about it. So you've got to wonder why. I did see an article on Fox News the other day, uh, which um, seemed to be quite accurately outlining the risks of these two pandemic treaties, uh, which I did. Um, I was very surprised to see. But there's been an awful lot of criticism levelled at New Zealand by mainstream media. They've rolled out uh, former Prime Minister Helen Clark, who's now heavily involved with the UN and I think was responsible for the Wuhan investigation initially. Um, they are very unhappy that New Zealand rejected the Article 59 amendments mm. uh, last December. And they're very unhappy because they uh, suggested that New Zealand was paving the way for the four other countries that um, mm. rejected that. And that's just simply not true. We were the second to last country to reject. You know, when they're rolling out those kinds of people, leveling those kinds of criticisms, that you're doing something right. Good. Well, when you're over the target, you do get flack. That's what they're saying uh, in, in World War II. Anyway, thank you very much, Katie Ashby Coppins. We'll have you on again to talk more about these things in, in a future date. Thank you very much. This is Thanks, TNT Penny. Radio. Thanks. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. So I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, because I'm doing a climate roundtable tomorrow. I'm assuming that the network that invited me on is probably the only network that's left around this part of the country that actually allows climate skeptics to be on. It'll be interesting because I'm sure there are going to be some people there to challenge me. In any case, when I walked into the hotel, the person at the front desk was from Adelaide, Australia, the city of churches. See, I learned something right and i got to thinking that maybe tomorrow i will spring on the people that are there for almost unprecedented climate events that have occurred around australia that are very very important around the climate now not directly with australia but north of australia the typhoon season despite the fact that we supposedly had an el nino going was way way below normal third lowest ever that's very unusual and that was the first hint 
that this El Nino wasn't what it was cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, the Southern Oscillation Index, which is the longest running metric of the El Nino, never got into El Nino category this year until now. But that was unprecedented when you had what we call the Oceanic Nino Index being so strong. That's two unprecedented things. Number three, the crash that is occurring in the Southern Oscillation Index is going to be the greatest on record from January to February. In fact, it may be the greatest on record from one month to another. It is unprecedented to see January with an above SOI and then February crashing the way this is. Now, in 1978, we had a weak El Nino going and then it crashed in February. By the way, they had all those floods in Los Angeles in 78. How about that? The fourth thing, the unprecedented warming of the ocean just to the east of Australia in a month or two. You see that? Tonight's climate and weather watchdog was all about Australia. It's because I ran into someone from Adelaide. This is TNT Climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Hi. I'm your retirement fear. But don't be scared. You're still in pre-tirement. Does that mean I have more time to plan? Precisely. Here, this is pretirement.org. Retirement savings options? <laughs> Potential tax breaks. Ooh. This isn't scary. I'm doing it. You got this. <laughs> Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan. Geopolitical commentator and investigative journalist, you're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk. TNT. TNT. Welcome back to TNT, the channel that tells the truth. Um, we've got Gloria Moss, who's an academic, who's published over eight books and over 70 peer-reviewed articles. And we're going to talk about uh, one of her bugbears and mine, actually, which is the parlous state of education in the West. But before that, I actually dipped into uh, one of your books. It's one of those really Moorish things. I didn't have time to read it all, but you were mm -hmm. talking about um, gender differences, which, of course, modern universities seem to deny, and the, the, the enhanced color sense of women compared to men and, and the way they assess designs differently. And um, I guess a bit of background, my mother's an artist, and um, she's, she can sit for hours just looking at, her own drawings and she says i mean it's almost an an, an entrancement and now i say well it's a nice color but she sees something else it's almost like having another sense and your book so your book was an eye-opener for me you're saying that women have a much more developed sense of color and, and a different sense of design tell us a little bit about that well i did this research for over 20 years and i found enormous differences statistically vastly significant in terms of the designs that males and females create and differences in their preferences, such that men tended to prefer the designs of other males and females tended to prefer the designs of other females. And all these findings were statistically off the scale. They were so significant. And oh. you mentioned differences in color vision. The physiological differences in the way that men and women see are also enormous and they're well documented in the psychology literature and so just mm. very briefly men have superior uh, 3d vision shall we say and that may be by virtue of the fact that men's eyes are spaced slightly further apart than women's five millimeters further apart and that gives them very good stereoscopic vision whereas uh, up to 50 percent of women according to some American researchers have a fourth color pigment, which moves them from men's hundreds. Uh, well, men can on average see millions of colors and women with their fourth color pigment, no man has more than three color pigments. With four color pigments, that gives women access to hundreds of millions more colors. That's incredible. I didn't know that. I mean, and that's like a superpower that women have, or, or many, many women have, and it gives them a completely a different way and a more enriched way to see the world, I guess. Well, it's a different way. But again, men have this different way of looking yeah. at the world too. And I've argued that these differences are rooted in sociology in the very long term. We're talking hundreds of thousands of years when men and women were hunter-gatherers. And men's yeah. way of seeing is very well adapted to hunter vision because they have mm. men have excellent targeting accuracy. 
by virtue of the stereoscopic vision. Whereas women at, in hunter-gatherer days, which apparently, Kelly, is 99% of human history. Yeah. It's difficult to imagine when we're sitting down here, but that was, yeah, yeah. That was how we operated. Uh, women's uh, greater color sense or greater color acuity is well adapted to the tasks that they performed, which are a mixture of gathering berries. You need to mm. discern the ripe from the unripe berries, looking after the base camp. They were the managers of the day and looking after the infants. So they needed to see if people were about to get very irate, you know, with, with reddened mm. cheeks. Um, right. but, but the point, the, 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 you know, there are so many implications for these findings, not mm. least commercial implications, because I don't know if you're aware of this or, or, or your viewers, but 83% of all purchases are actually made by women. And wow. given the fact yeah. that females prefer design created by females, over design created by males. Mm. This is unconscious. It's because the design looks different. Mm. And because females constitute this army of shoppers, really mm. you would expect retailers, product designers, graphic designers to mm. be mirroring the female aesthetic back at their mm. female consumers. But that mm. very rarely happens, not least mm. because most marketing directors tend to be male. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and uh, most web designers tend to be male. And so there's a, a, an enormous opportunity here. For That's absolutely fascinating. Although, of course, the men will, uh, and the boys in the family will also ultimately be the consumers, and they have to be appealed to as well. But that's fascinating. All, all I can say, I mean, I like, I'm interested in books, and I, and I write books and so on, is that you can see mm -hmm. if a book's aimed at a female audience, because it's, it's got a slightly different aesthetic than if it's aimed at a male audience. So there seems to be some awareness, perhaps. It's kind of, yeah, you're saying individual. that women, more, yeah. more they like uh, softer shapes, is that right? And uh, flowery? Yes, you're looking at, of course, there are um, individuals who will defy these norms that we've been talking mm. about. I'm talking mm. about the average predispositions that I found mm. in these 20 years of research. And on balance, the female likes more color, more rounded shapes. Mm. The uh, they they like uh, a lot of detail in the design, mm. and and the males like pretty well the opposite of, of mm. all of that. So is there? Like, we could talk about this for hours. Actually, uh, is there a difference between a men and men and women's preference? From uh, is modern art like more of a male thing, perhaps, for instance, and and classical art more of a me female thing? Oh, that's a really when we get into the whole field of fine art, that's fascinating. If we take something like the National Gallery in London, which is where I'm based at the moment. Uh, we call it the National Gallery. I did, um, I counted up all the paintings by males and females mm. in the National Gallery. And well, I could ask you to guess the proportion of paintings in the so-called National Gallery yeah. that are by women. Uh, I don't want to- 8%, 5%. A lot of people guess that it would be that. It's actually 0.1%. Oh point one. So there are one 17, in a thousand. There are seventeen, to be precise, paintings in the National Gallery by women. Wow! And I, I don't put this down necessarily to uh, direct discrimination. No. I put it down to indirect discrimination. That over the centuries, the art collectors, the people with the money, tended mm. to be men, and of mm. course, they would have selected paintings that appeal to them, which according to the studies I've done over this 20-year period, will mm. be artwork by men. And they will mm -hmm. deselect those paintings by women. A lot of people think mm -hmm. women were not painting over the centuries, and that right. simply is true. If you go to right. the Washington Museum of Modern Art, which is exclusively there to display the work by female artists, you will mm. see that work by female artists goes back to the Renaissance period. I, no, I think so, it's simply the case that they've. Uh, uh, you're uh, saying there's a whole universe of discrimination. Hmm? Whole, there are enormous catalogues or a whole universe of female art that has never made it into the public sphere somewhere, unless it's been destroyed. That we're still waiting to discover a whole, whole solar well, system it, of art. It, it's actually there, as I say, it's in mm -hmm. the Washington Museum of right. Women in Art. Okay. Uh, and, and an extraordinary experience to walk around there. Mm -hmm. and be exposed to this aesthetic 
which is mm -hmm. so often neglected in mm. Western um, museums and art galleries. Even if you go to modern art, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. Billy, if you go right. to the Museum of Modern Art in in the US, the proportion of uh, artwork by women is still under 10%. So, and I think it's because of this yeah. deselecting. Mm. Uh, we could talk about this maybe another time. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're just we'll, we'll turn to our next subject in just a second. It's quite a short, these are quite short interviews. But mm. when you, have you ever brought a male friend to this, this uh, female-centered uh, museum? And do they find that it's not for them? And do you find a special sort of affiliation with this? I mean, mm. you're, trying, you're turning the tables on your male companions and said, well, this, is, this art appeals to me. And what do you think? You know, what, what, what's their reaction? Well, well, I found out the reaction through anecdote, but also through studies, quite meticulously conducted mm -hmm. studies, where we might show one year coming up to Christmas, I decided to run a study with Christmas cards, which were controlled yeah. for various elements like subject mm -hmm. matter and mm -hmm. style. And I showed people of a variety of ages, children and adults, a card designed by a man and a card designed by a woman and mm. ask them to indicate their preference. Mm. And lo and behold, most of the males selected the Christmas card designed by the man and uh, vice versa for the women. The women <laughs> selected the card designed by the female, which was another difference is the men tend to use very clear outlines. They like their images, mm. uh, broadly speaking, leaving out the impressionists. They like their images given the choice to be have a, a very clear cut and three-dimensional mm -hmm. in appearance. And the females mm. prefer, dare I say it, a more two-dimensional right. look. Uh, yes. Well, so all this is very interesting. These differences you, are consistent in the studies. You know, men it's, 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 are, women prefer so Should we have two economies, uh, um, male mm. designers doing for, for male buyers, even though they're a minority, and female designers working for a female market, you know? Well, what I would just say two things. One is, I think that uh, if, we're, if we're in the commercial world, then we want to project to the customer the aesthetic that will have most appeal to them. That makes good yeah, business. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we want to do that across products, furniture, uh, just to name one, or the, the graphic design on grocery products, or mm. retail interiors. Uh, the second, uh, and at the moment, because there's, I guess, limited awareness of of what what we're talking about today, mm. people are not, and because the whole subject of sex and gender has become mm. so politicised that it's talking about difference today uh, mm. is is quite problematic in certain circles. But mm. certainly, I do think that we should be using this science, because it is scientific information, in mm. order to uh, produce products, retail interiors, that have more appeal for whichever market is being mm. appealed to. The second point I would make about designers is that a lot of design education teaches the male aesthetic as the norm, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And yeah, yeah. If, if, if a female student comes up with something that she likes. Mm. I, I know this because I've been around art colleges yeah. and spent time. Mm. Uh, then mm. I, I've come across instances where the female, for example, one who produced a round stool, was told off, rebuked uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in, in, in a professional manner for producing mm. that round stool. Uh, an argument was produced that it would be structurally unsound, but I did mm -hmm. actually check that with a couple mm -hmm. of other lecturers and they said that that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it wouldn't be as simple as just saying, well, let's choose a female designer, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that female designer may not be in tune with their original proclivities, which may have been mm -hmm. trained out of them, if you follow me. Yes. I do, I do. I, it's, it's very interesting, and I agree with a lot of it, or most of it. I mean, I can't, I don't have enough facts to contradict mm -hmm. it, and I'm, I'm fine with it. But we'll just spend the last few minutes just segueing into your more recent topic of interest, which is the bad state of, of political correctness, woke, and all that. I don't, I don't think we'll have time to talk about it in as much detail as both you and I would like. Mm. But I'll say this, I'll drop a sort of controversial question. 
should there be, I mean, uh, in Sweden, all schools are mixed, but I know when I went to the school in the UK, this, you still got uh, boys' schools and girls' schools. I went to boys' school. Do you think there's a case then for um, for girls' schools and boys' schools, different education systems um, where they have separate educations because men and uh, boys and girls and men and women are different in their preferences and interests? Oh, that's a very complex area. Mm. And there are so many factors that would play mm. into into mm. The, the best solution. And mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is just one of many elements okay. that I think one would want to look at, Penny. Uh, but it's a very important okay. one. And, and yeah. it applies also to writing style, because mm -hmm. I've come across academics. Uh, Professor Mallonby at Oxford, for example, at one point, looked at the writing styles of males and females and mm. found differences. Mm. And, and I, I believe it's going back several years, she was arguing mm. that the male style may be favoured over the female, perhaps more discursive mm. style. So mm. I do think where differences exist, mm. there should be, definitely should be recognition of those differences. Yeah, And I've actually conducted a study looking at, well, I published an article looking at school results in relation to the gender of the examiners. Mm. And I, I presented a hypothesis that, at, mm. at the higher levels of school exams, mm. A-levels in, in Britain, where the um, females tended to do uh, better than the males in the final results. Most of the examiners were male, mm -hmm. but as soon as they moved to university, where most, mm. sorry, at school level, most of the examiners are female, and the mm -hmm. girls do better in the res exam results. As soon as you switch, to looking at university results, mm. then mm. it reverses, and most of the firsts go to the men, and most of the examiners at university uh, and art schools are, are male. So, so this is a very just, important just, point you've raised. Incredibly interesting, uh, but just to summarize, because we've got a, a minute or two left, you're, you're definitely the men are from Mars, women are from Venus camp. I mean, men and women are different, but that puts you at odds with politically political correctness of the day which says that men and women I've, i had some contacts at lund university in sweden the professors at the top level of the professor writ and yeah. they said that my incoming students think that men and women are identical because that's what they learn at school and that leads to a lot that, of problems is, because it's anti-scientific that is the prevailing wisdom but yeah but they're wrong uh, yeah the, the the biggest sex difference is height i think that's mm. pretty indisputable by and large, men are taller than women. Mm. And mm. after height, the second biggest sex difference mm. is the one mm. I'm talking about here, the visuospatial. Yeah. yeah. And well, anyway, Gloria, uh, yeah. It's incredibly interesting to talk to you, and we'll have to talk about your assault on the uh, the decline of universities another time, I think, because that is a whole topic of its own. I'd like to thank you very much for interesting insights. Thank you very much, Gloria, and this is TNT Radio.